such a way that when we get through with this, that you have more than just an overall understanding of the material that we've covered, that you actually have it fixed in your mind in such a way that you can just sit out and converse and bring up that material yourself. And try, first of all, remember that the details will take care of themselves if all the time you're just listening for the big picture and the overall things that you can tie together. You'll do that. You'll see as a result of repetition that the details themselves will take care of themselves. Now, first, our review from last week, the week before, Let's see, Sean, would you get that middle row of lights, please? Okay, thanks. We have dealt with the date itself and the importance of the dating of the book itself, and we noted that just like we study Old Testament prophecy, that to really study it and know exactly what you've got, if you've got anything, you have to know the dating of the material itself and how you interpret any body of literature that has some figurative uh, statements in it is going to be determined on the events that are involved when you believe that material was written. And so the dating of the book is very important. We looked at the external arguments and we noted that although, although, just about any Bible that you pick up or most encyclopedias that you would go to or dictionaries and look for a date of revelation, you would generally see the day 96 AD. And as a result of that, you just simply accept it, like I did for many years, because remember, your mind will tend to challenge and become inquisitive about those things that either do not sound logical or they're at variance with something else. But if it, it doesn't sound illogical to you, and it's not at variance with anything else that you've heard and everybody else seems to believe it, then your mind doesn't challenge that material in the same way. Well, there's nothing illogical, we know, when you read in the book and you see the date, 96 on the surface, there's nothing illogical. We're going to see it by the time we finish this, but I think there's several things illogical about it. But on the surface, it really doesn't appear that way. And then when you uh, look at the material itself and you find that nowhere do you find anything else. Uh, I know myself for years as a Christian, as I always read through the Bible, Genesis Revelation, Genesis Revelation. And I always read the background of the Bible, but I was reading from a lot of similar sources. And I simply never saw any variation to Revelation put in anywhere except in 96 AD. Well, obviously, if that's in your mind, then it's just like reading Matthew 24 and you read in verse 3 about what are the signs that's coming in the end of the world. If that's injected in your mind, the end of the world, then you're going to read all the following statements with that in your mind, the end of the world. And you wouldn't have any reason not to, and you're going to look to fit it into that statement. But, as we found out with Matthew 24, if you find out that the end of the world is really an erroneous translation, and what he's really saying, literally, is the consummation of the age, and the newer translations render it that way. In fact, one of the two Bibles I'm using tonight is the Revised King James, the New King James Version, which, by the way, I'm really impressed with it as I go through it. Uh, it has changed this. It has changed the other revision of the King James. It now says the consummation or the, or the, end, of, or the end of the age. In fact, several other areas of like nature, it's, it's also changed. So, when we get to Revelation, and we have this in our mind, obviously, if it says 96, then you're going to think of events beginning with 96.
96 and coming from that point. And you're going to just push aside anything that happened before 96 AD. But on the other hand, if we look and, and we find something else, then your mind's going to look at Revelation in a little different way. And we noted something that at least was very, very interesting to me. And that is when we look at the historical scholars down through the centuries, we find that all through the centuries, there have been those individual outstanding scholars. And by outstanding, I'm not given my definition of outstanding. I'm talking about in the light of the world's scholarship, out there in religion dog. And I use it in, in the large sense. These scholars, there have always been those scholars that placed Revelation before 70 AD. And then as we get closer to the time we're in now, a very interesting thing has happened. As more and more discoveries have been made of an archaeological nature, and more and more studies have been made of the language itself and comparing it with other literature at that time and the events of that time, we have found that more and more of the scholarship places it before 70 AD. So at the present time, although in churches all over this country, this book is used to teach premillennialism and is drugged down through the centuries in various ways and just simply put by theologians in 96 AD, the truth is, right or wrong, the truth is that the vast majority of scholars today put Revelation before 70 AD. By scholars, I mean those people that, that are the scholars in history, and are in archaeology, and in language. That these people place it before 70 AD. And there's a difference between an individual looking at material from just simply a scholarship standpoint, or looking at it from the standpoint of a theological bias. That I have certain things that I believe in a religious nature. There's a big difference there. Alright, we looked at the evidence there pertaining to the date, and one man that we've noted extensively is, is Foy Wallace Jr., uh, simply because that uh, in Churches of Christ, Foy Wallace, over this past century, would be regarded, I believe, by, by preachers as the preacher's preacher. That he literally has been the outstanding scholar in Churches of Christ in this century. And I, I don't know that the man has written anything that I have read, and I've always uh, been fascinated by the material itself, because he's so well studied and so well researched. And so it's very interesting to me to find out that Foy Wallace had changed his entire thinking and had come out with a book, uh, putting Revelation before 70 AD, stating that he was wrong and that people had taught him had been wrong, and then going to great detail to give tremendous evidence for this book having been written before 70 AD. Now, we notice something that the internal evidence has always, in the judgment of even the theologians, favored Revelation being written before 70 AD. And there are even those scholars who accepted 66 because that was what was there in the dictionaries and encyclopedias, but who themselves would make comments that this seems to indicate that the temple was still standing or the city was still standing. And they recognize that there is evidences there that this material was written, evidence of an internal nature, that it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, and this kind of evidence has baffled them and left them with an air of uncertainty. We look at all through the Gospels and through the letters of the New Testament, we have Jesus stating emphatically that Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would go to its downfall, the Jewish nation would go to its downfall, 
would be God's wrath on that people for the rejection of the Messiah and for the rejection and killing of righteous men going all the way back to Abel. And Satan's by Jesus was this great event was going to come about in the lifetime of the people that he talked to. And then these apostles that listened to Jesus reiterated these same promises and used terms throughout the letters of this impending judgment that was coming soon. And these statements are in letters written before 78 AD. And it's interesting, even the theologians who put Revelation after 78 AD recognized these statements, uh, for example, in 1 Peter 4 and in James 5, Hebrews 10, as being statements pertaining to the downfall of the Jewish nation and the destruction of Jerusalem. Then we noted that in Revelation, it is a fact that the Jews are still a force against Christianity. After the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews are not a force against Christianity. But they are a force when this writer writes the book. Now, another interesting thing, and that is that according to Revelation, Jerusalem is still standing at the time that the writer writes. Obviously, this is not true after 78 AD. Notice, for example, in Revelation 3 and 12, I was going to get into that last week, and we simply ran out of time. If you'd like to turn over there, Revelation 3 and verse 12, First notice in verse 9, it says, I will, indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, but are not, but lie, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the iron trial which will come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly, Hold fast to that which you have, that no one may take your crown. So here are the people that John is writing to, and their enemies are these individuals who say they're Jews, but they're really not Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And John says that the Lord through John, when he comes in judgment, he is going to make known that these people, the Christians, are the people that he loves, and they represent his truth. And he said, I will make, speaking of the Jews, I will make them come and worship before you and know that I have loved you. Okay, now, then he says he's coming quickly. Verse 11. But now look at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of, notice now, the new city, the name of the city of my God. Christians who are being persecuted by people who claim to be Jews. 
situation, he pictures a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. There was fleshly Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed. New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven is not a literal city that God drops out of heaven. New Jerusalem is the church, God's people. Just like we have fleshly Israel, the Jews of the Old Testament, spiritual Israel, the Christians of the New Testament. We have the fleshly Jacob and the spiritual descendants of Jacob. The fleshly seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed of Abraham. And so we have the fleshly physical Jerusalem and spiritual Jerusalem. And so you have New Jerusalem in contrast to Old Jerusalem. Now, look at uh, Revelation 11 again. And all we're showing in this passage is that Jerusalem was still standing at the time that John wrote this passage. I was given a read like a measuring rod. And the angel stood and said, Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. The point is, the treading underfoot of the holy city was something that was to happen in the future tense. And it was to happen for 42 months. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 100, 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Well, if you divide 30 into that, you'll come out with 42. 42 months, three and a half years. Then, come on down to verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. So this is a future time to make war against them. And then look at verse 8. Their dead bodies, again, looking into the future, will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Obviously, Jerusalem. So he says, spiritually, it's called Sodom and Egypt. But it's the city where our Lord was crucified. And we noted God passed judgment on Sodom. He passed judgment on Egypt. He's going to pass judgment on Jerusalem. Now, when we get to the 18th chapter of Revelation, we're going to find that Jerusalem is spiritually called Babylon. In other words, throughout Revelation, when we read of Sodom, and we read here of Egypt, and then we're going to read of Babylon, we're speaking of Jerusalem. We'll also notice we get further into the study that over in the Old Testament, there were a number of times when God was speaking to the Israelites in a time of rebellion, and he would make statements, you people of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, in the same way that you and I might make a statement, you Jezebel, or you Ahab, or you Judas, in that sense. And so in the same way that you and I would call somebody a Judas, or an Ahab, or a Jezebel, so the Jews, in times of rebellion, when God was going to punish them, were referred to in times, as we'll see in the Old Testament, of you people of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, or as he just said here, you people of Egypt, you people of Sodom, and we're going to see in Revelation 18, you people of Babylon. All right, now what do all these places have in common? We point out Sodom, judged by God because of sin. The same thing with Egypt, judged by God because of sin. What about Babylon? Same thing. Judged by God because of sin and ungodliness. And so therefore, when he's speaking to his people, 
in their sin and their ungodliness, he refers to them, and man, they understood exactly what he was saying, and the readers of John understood exactly what he was saying. But our point, that we have a new Jerusalem in contrast with old Jerusalem. Old Jerusalem is still to be done away with, and then it will be replaced by the new Jerusalem, the spiritual Israel. And in Revelation 11, 1 through 8, at the time that John is writing this, he's talking about the temple and the court and the city, and he speaks of as something that is in existence at that present moment, but it's something that is going to be judged. And so they trod underfoot, he said, 42, he doesn't just say 42 months, but he says 1260 days, don't he? And then another time, the Revelation writer will say, of time, times, and half. So think of that, 42 months, 1260 days, divide 30 into that, you get 42 months, time, times, half a time, three and a half. Israel and Rome went to war in 66. It culminated in 70. There was exactly 42 months in the war that took place between Israel and Rome before it culminated in the complete destruction of that city. Now, we're going to notice something else as we get through this fourth chapter and come up to the 11th. He's going to talk about all these plagues and diseases and famines and things like that that hit the city. We're going to parallel this, not only with what's happened here, but with events again in the Old Testament whenever God passed judgment on Israel. Remember he said, I will send the pestilence to you, and I'll send the plagues, and I'll send the sword. And then you would have all of this described, sometimes in the type of literature we have here, sometimes in very figurative literature. And we noted what happened back in those days, first century, just as back through the Old Testament. The cities all were encompassed by a wall. And this was to protect the city. And so when the enemy come, they always had the watchman on the wall. And when the enemy come, the watchman would blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, and they close the gates of the city up. And the wall was composed generally, you'd have the wall, and then you've got the wall like this, and then in between here you've got apartments and places that people live and, and other activities going on. In other words, you've got a thick place up the top where they walk and build and say, for example, Rahab. Uh, she lived in an apartment that was right between the two walls, and, and she could actually hang something out on the other side so it could be seen. And so this was the situation. They got in the city. Well, then when the army comes, what's going to happen if you just charge the city and think you're going to take it? Even if you've got a huge army, you're probably going to lose all of them. Because they're going to sit right up on the walls, and as the army charged, even this great Roman army, they, they didn't have the kind of weapons we've got now. And so as they charge the city, they're just going to stand up and take them off, one at a time. So what they would do, they would besiege the city. And they would not allow any food to come in. And they would not allow any water to come in. And then a waiting game set. And they would sit there and literally starve the people out. And what would happen on the inside? They begin to ration water and food, and things become scarce. Well, as things become scarce, and people become scared that they're going to starve, starve to death, greed gets in the way. And you begin to have fighting, and discontent, and selfishness that shows itself inside the city itself. Then as it gets scarcer and scarcer, something else happens. They cut down, and as people do not get enough food, they begin to suffer malnutrition. And their body becomes subject to diseases that normally their body would have fought off. And so disease goes rampage to the city. The people are malnourished. 
so bad, as we read in the Old Testament, and Josephus will record here that with the destruction of Jerusalem, it gets so bad that people eat their own dead. And we actually have women giving birth to babies and then boiling and eating the baby. And we have people dying and people ready to fight over the carcass because they're going to eat it to stay alive. And that's what goes on. So what happens, just as this is described in vivid detail in the Old Testament, when the Revelation writer talks about this destruction that God is going to bring on this place, he's going to talk about the angel in wrath one and wrath two and wrath three. And all of these things will, will happen. And you have all of this as the, as the city is besieged. But then, what happens? Finally the people are weakened. A multitude have died. Many have killed one another. Diseases have taken its course. And even those on the wall are extremely weak. There are no healthy people. Then they give them a chance to surrender, maybe. If they don't surrender, now you storm the city. And by the time you've waited all that time, those soldiers out there, they've waited all that time. Some of them have died. Some of them have been put to death. <clears throat> they are mad. They're extremely angry. And they're full of hatred. And they storm that city in all their anger, and all their hatred, and all their vengeance. And you've got those six people in there to defend it. And they go in. And they go in with a sword to kill everything that's alive. And they go in to burn and to ravage and to tear down and to destroy. And then you wind up with dead bodies all over the city. Well, you're going to read in Revelation, don't you, about the dead bodies in the sink that comes to the city. They didn't have bulldozers back then. And so when people began to die by the thousands, you got all the stench then of the dead bodies piled up. Well, then, they're going to take those bodies, and Josephus again, before we finish here, we'll be reading Josephus. They'll actually take those bodies to the valley again. And thousands, Josephus will record thousands of bodies will be thrown into the Valley of Hinnom and literally burn up. And Valley of Hinnom is where the Jews burned their garbage and their refuge, and it goes back to when God passed the judgment into the, on the days of Josiah. It's used as a type of, of hell or the eternal punishment to come. It's used to symbolize that. And it stood right outside Jerusalem, and the bodies will go and be piled up there. And so with that in your mind, in other words, I'm saying Josephus could have read Revelation and had no problem whatsoever with it. And any Christian of that time could have read Revelation and have absolutely no problem because the things we're talking about happened in vivid detail right before their eyes. Okay, now, we noted just very briefly on these, these few here about Revelation being an uncovering. It was meant to be understood. And God, through Jesus, through an angel, gave it to John in order to show those people what must soon take place. The time was near. It's going to speedily occur. We noted that it was written literally to the seven church. Seven churches in Asia. We noted that right before 70 AD, that's what history tells us existed there, seven churches. After 70 AD, Christianity begins to spread. In fact, Revelation's going to do with this. After this big judgment that takes place, that takes place in Revelation, we're going to have the spreading of the kingdom on a worldwide nation. And but now, after 70 AD, but now we get to 96, when we have a whole lot more than seven churches in 
But knowing that in the book of Acts, all the persecution you read in the book of Acts is Jewish persecution of Christians or Jewish instituted, instituted persecution of Christians, instigated persecution of Christians. Jesus promised that he was going to deal with them for that kind of persecution. The apostles reiterated that Jesus would deal with them for the kind of persecution that they had suffered. Now, so another one, this is the last one we covered last week, the repeated statement, he that overcome, spoken directly to these people in those churches that each time we read they're an imminent trial, and each time the hill that overcome, you hang in there. And so Revelation is written to try and persuade these people to hang in there, God is with you, God is coming in a short way to take judgment on your foes, that he that overcome, if people maintain your faith in God, you're going to come out victorious. Now, what I'd like to do is show tonight some parallels between Matthew 24, and I believe that if you'd like to read this out, we're going to read them in the passages tonight, but in Wallace's book, on page 41 or 42, I believe it starts on page 41, he actually writes all the verses out so you can see them side by side. It's too much to get on one overlay. Uh, but again, if you have access to that, it, it would be, it's good to look at it in, in just that way. Now, I'd like to start with Brother uh, Sherwood reading Matthew 24, 34, and then Jack with Revelation 1-1, and then Sherwood going back to number 2, and then Jack and Paul's just a little bit after each one. We're going to notice the similarities there. Jack is read first there on Matthew 24, or Sherwood's got it, Matthew 24, 34. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass, but all these things be fulfilled. Okay, notice Matthew ends this judgment situation by saying, this generation shall still be standing. Okay, Jack? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent, sent Okay, so Jesus said the thing would take place in the lifetime of some of those people. Here in 1 1, we are getting down about 30 years of past, a little over 30, about 34 or so years, 34, 35 years. And then he makes the statement that these things are shortly. What he's talking about here is shortly because the past was sealed in the lifetime of some of the people that were alive right then. Okay, now look at Matthew 24, 21. Then shall be great tribulation, such as, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, no. Okay, notice he said, these events in Matthew 24, remember we've already established Matthew 24. There's all of those events going to happen in the lifetime of those people and applied it to the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish people. And so he says at this time when Jerusalem falls, there will be great tribulation, the worst that the Jewish people had ever experienced. Okay, now I'll look at Revelation 1 9, 3 10, and 7 14. Revelation 1 9. I, John, your brother, and fellow taker in the tribulations and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the world, word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so John tells you that he is in tribulation right there. 
And he's writing to people that are in tribulation. Okay, I'll look at 3 and 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Okay. These people suffering persecution. There's an hour, a real severe hour that was coming. Of all of those who were there at that time. Now look at 7 and 14. And I said to him, My Lord, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Alright, now let's listen to that. We read in Matthew 24, 21, about the destruction of Jerusalem, that this would be the greatest tribulation that the Jewish people had ever gone through, the great tribulation that they were going through. John writes to people at a time when he says, I'm under tribulation, you're under tribulation. And then in this judgment situation, he says in verse 14 of chapter 7, I said to him, sir, you know, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so John writing to people who are coming out of a great tribulation and yet are going to be delivered. They are, they are the people of God. Okay, now let's go back to Matthew 24, verse 2, 23, 37. That's chapter 23, verse 37. That's 23, verse 24, and 37. No, that's uh, 24, 2, and then 23, verse 37. Yeah, in that order. Verse 2. And Jesus said to them, See not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be built. Here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown back. Okay, speaking of the temple. He says, see these things, there shall not be one stone that shall be set up standing and not thrown down. Okay, now verse 37 of chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stones them with their seven feet. How often do I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chicken on their wings, and ye would not? Okay, here's Jerusalem. He said, I would have gathered you as a hen would gather chickens. You would not. He goes on to say, your house is left unto you desolate. Okay, now, after making those statements there, look at what the Revelation writer says in Revelation 11 and 8, 18, 10, and verse 21. 11 and 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 1810, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Okay, and then verse 21. And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence. Will not be found any Okay, you know he's not talking about literal, but Babylon's already been destroyed, right? Babylon was destroyed a long time ago. Now look at what happens here. Jesus said, Jerusalem is going to be desolate, it's going to be destroyed. He said the temple's going to be destroyed, not one stone will be left standing. Then you know in Revelation, in the judgment of this city that he's talking about, 
It says it's the city where the Lord was crucified. That spiritually I'm calling it Sodom and Egypt. It's where the Lord was crucified. And then it speaks of the dead bodies that were piled up in the city. And then in 1810, he calls this great city Babylon. And speaks of the destruction of this great city Babylon. And the same thing in verse 20, verse 21. And you go on down to the end of that chapter. You can see that after the destruction of this great city Babylon, then the people of God go ahead and reign, and will go ahead and conquer and sustain their message throughout, throughout the earth. And so here we have Jerusalem spoken about in terms of its destruction. Here we have Jerusalem pictured in a figurative sense using ungodly places like Sodom, like Egypt, like Babylon, but yet very clear in that he's talking about a great sinful city. He's not talking about literal Babylon. Babylon's already been destroyed. Not, he tells you he's not talking about Sodom. He's not talking about Egypt. He's talking about the city, he said, where the Lord was crucified. And he even tells us specifically that spiritually, he's referring to it in those terms, and we noted that this is consistent in the Old Testament on a number of occasions. God would speak to the people of Jerusalem and a few people of Sodom and you people of Gomorrah. Okay, now, come on down to Matthew 20, let's see, that was 24 and 16 through 21. And let them which be in Judea be in the mountain. And let him which is on the housetop not come down and take anything out of his house. He let him which is in the field to turn back and take his clothes. And more than them that was child, and them that be a second of faith. But pray that, she, that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be a great tribulation, since it was not since the beginning of the world this time, no longer shall be. Okay, now, listen before we go into uh, Revelation. Here in the destruction of Jerusalem, he speaks of a great tribulation. And how are the people of God to escape that great tribulation? Flee. Don't, if you're in Judea, don't come into the city. Flee to the mountains. Pray that your flight be not on the Sabbath day. Why? Because on the Sabbath day, the gates of the city were closed. Pray that you be not pregnant in those days. It's more difficult to flee if a lady was pregnant. Pray that it's not winter. It's more difficult to, difficult to flee. So he's talking about judgment on the Jewish people that rejected him. And he said it's going to be a great tribulation. But then the way God's people are going to be delivered is by fleeing. And in fleeing, why are they going to flee and be successful in it? Because Jesus is saying that I'm giving you the signs of my coming in the end of the age. And so when you see, as Luke said, Luke 21, 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, now you get ready for it, that's why the Lord said, when you begin to hear wars, rumors of wars, when you begin to hear famines and earthquakes, when you begin to hear a nation rising against nation, and then after all of that, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then get out. If you're up on the house stuff, don't even come down and get anything. If you're out in the fields, don't come in the city. Get out of the city. And then pray that your flight not be in these certain situations. And he's talking about it at the time of the tribulation. Let's go into Revelation 12 and 6 and over something. Okay, Jack. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared for God so that there she might be married. For 1,260 days. 
city where the Lord was crucified, the dead bodies had piled up. But then what happens? After the downfall of that city, look at verse 15 now. The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What would happen is, with the downfall of that city, the downfall of Judaism, Christianity is going to take off and literally encompass the earth. And the missionaries will go everywhere. They'll spread that message. Churches will grow by the thousands. And in a short time, Christianity will conquer the Roman Empire. And so again, a people sinfully defeated, delivered by the knowledge given to them by the Lord, and then going ahead to conquer and to spread the message. And in each case, a same or a similar type of figurative message, language that's used in the process.